Hey, this is Jeff Lemire, writer of Black Hammer, Sweet Tooth, Gideon Falls, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or use a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Been everybody, the horns are played. That means it's time for Spoiler Country. Welcome back. I'm Johnny Horsey. Kenrick is still moving, so I'm doing this by myself again. But today on the show, we got the one, the only, the writer, the artist, the incredibly awesome person who is Jeff Lemire. Now, Jeff, I've met him in person at a couple comic cons, got a few books signed for him. He is an incredibly nice person to talk to. He is so cordial and i couldn't when i was speaking to him about some of the stuff he's written um it was it was amazing he he instantly became you know uh i instantly became a bigger fan of his and today our very own jeff haas got to sit down with jeff lemire and talk about his career and some of the stuff he's done so so let's just stop chatting here let's go ahead and listen to jeff and jeff in their own words Listeners of Spoiler Country, today we have a very special guest, Jeff Lemire. How's it going, Mr. Lemire? Good. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing very well. How are you dealing with your world right now and COVID and everything? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always, seems to me, always changing, but it, all in all, pretty good, you know? Everyone's healthy here and still working away, so I can't really complain. You definitely seem to be one of the busiest people in comic books right now. You seem, you, you read a lot of titles, you've written a lot of prior titles before that. How do you keep so busy? Well, I don't know. I think I just have always liked juggling a lot of different projects at once. And, and honestly, I just really like working. You know, I'm, I'm kind of happiest when I'm working. So I probably work too much. But you know, <laughs> when it's when you enjoy what you do, it's, it's kind of hard not to want to do it all the time, I guess. Do you find yourself more prolific during um, this lockdown? Or has it been a drag on your efficiency? I think the first the first month or two when everything was just beginning and there was a lot of uncertainty and and stress about that, it was definitely, you know, my productivity went way down because I was just sort of dealing with with family things and stress and trying to figure out what was happening and what we were gonna do and, <laughs> you know, like everyone was. But then as we as it's sort of I wouldn't see, you know, I, I guess as things sort of leveled out or, or became more normal you know i kind of got back to work at a normal rate as well and so yeah now I, I wouldn't say i'm more or less prolific now but just sort of i mean i'm really busy now but it's kind of that's sort of the norm so yeah <laughs> so the lockdown actually must be on some level kind of in your real house i've read that you left a, a, a future in film because you preferred a, a solitary type of life was that true uh <laughs> I don't know about solitary, but I think I just, what it was, was I, you know, I was, I did go to film school and mostly because uh, there weren't a lot of avenues for me to sort of pursue storytelling or, or the things I wanted to do. You know, I grew up in a, in a pretty small town in, in Canada and, and being a comic writer or comic book artist was not really something that felt very realistic or practical. You know, I grew up around, you know, farmers and factory workers and, and pursuing any kind of a career in the arts wasn't really a practical thing or there wasn't really a path towards doing that, you know. And But there was a film program in Toronto, which is was about four hours from where I grew up. And I thought, well, you know, that's something I can get out of, I can get, get go to the city, get out of the small town I grew up in and, and sort of learn about storytelling and, and 
And so I, I did do the program. This would have been the late 90s, mid 90s, I guess. And but yeah, the more I did it, the more I just kind of fell more and love, more in love with comics. I, I'd always love comics first and foremost, but especially when I got to the city and started taking the program and I just wanted to draw all the time, you know, and all the ideas I got for films, I, I would, I just realized I'd much rather sit down and draw them myself as comics. So, and also, you know, just film is, it, it involves so many people and it's so expensive. And whereas with comics, you can just sit down and, and execute your idea exactly how you see it by yourself. So it's, in a lot of ways, it seemed more achievable too, you know? And so, yeah, I just kind of started pursuing comics really seriously and, and never looked back. So what did your parents think when you were like, hey, you know, I went to school for, uh, for film, I know, but, you know, I'm going to do this comic book thing instead. <laughs> yeah, I think they probably were, were terrified that I was going to be, you know, homeless and, and destitute for the rest of my life. But they were pretty, you know, pretty good about not verbalizing that. I think they, they were always probably pretty worried and didn't really see a career in, in the things I was pursuing, but but they kind of gave me my space to do it. And, uh, you know, eventually, obviously it worked out for me, but yeah, I'm sure there were times where they, they were very doubtful. That's for sure. Yeah. I would say, I mean, you kind of had your parents kind of in a tough situation because on the one hand, comics are very hard for you to get into, but I imagine film isn't that much easier. No, they're both, they were both sort of out of, out of their sort of wheelhouse. And like I said, they, they were, my dad's a farmer and works in an auto factory and, so, I mean, doing the, the kind of things I was trying to do wasn't really something anyone in our family or in our, you know, immediate immediate sort of sphere growing up didn't do these kind of things. So I think it was all sort of foreign and strange to them, and they just sort of hoped for the best. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, luckily it worked out. Yeah, it definitely worked out. Um, what kind of books were you reading as you were preparing for your future? Oh, uh, geez. Well, you know, I mean, I, when I was a kid, like I said, I was in a small town, so there weren't any comic book stores. And that would have been the in the the mid to late 80s. I was, you know, growing up uh, on a farm. And uh, so the only comics I could really get my hands on were whatever was at the news, on the newsstand, you know, at convenience stores or whatever, gas stations. And so it was really just all the Marvel and DC stuff from the mid to late 80s was sort of what I fell in love with originally and what, what made me kind of fall in love with comics and start drawing. And I mean, I, I still have such a, a sentimental connection to pretty much anything published between like 84 and, <laughs> and 91 you know by marvel and dc especially i was always for whatever reason gravitated more towards the dc stuff so that stuff sort of was what i grew up on and then of course as i when i became a teenager and got a little older uh it was kind of perfect timing because that's when the the vertigo imprint sort of kicked in at dc and so there all of a sudden comics were kind of growing up as i was and there was always sort of something to keep me interested in in the medium so then I got really into the Vertigo stuff. And, and then when I, when I left home and came to Toronto, suddenly there were a whole bunch of really great comic shops here and I could get independent comics and, and foreign comics. And, and it kind of just opened my eyes to all kinds of, much, you know, any, anything you could imagine. And so in my early twenties, I, I really got exposed to all kinds of other stuff, you know, and started started reading a lot of like Dan Klaus and Chris Ware and Seth and uh, all the kind of independent stuff that was coming out in the late nineties, early two thousands. So yeah, you know, the stuff I was reading and the stuff I was into kind of changed and grew as, as I did. So really, if you look at it, I kind of had a, a really wide sort of a wide selection, a pretty diverse selection of influences and, and things that were inspiring me. Well, you definitely grew up at the best time for comics. I mean, the Sandman would have been 1989, which I guess I've been writing your rail house. That's to me my most favorite uh, series of all time. Yeah, so that that hit when that came, and then there were also Hellblazer was being published at the yeah. same time, and those those two books were kind of like as I grew out of superheroes, those were the two books that were waiting for me to keep me interested, you know. <laughs> so I got really in, into that stuff, and, and I, I mean, yeah, those two those two titles in particular were just monumental. They were huge and had a massive influence on on my love of comics for sure. So was Lost Dogs your first published work? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, when I, I got out of film school right around 2000, 99, 2000, I think. And I had started in my last year or two at school drawing a lot of comics and trying different things. And so I spent about three or four years after I got out of school working on this big graphic novel that never really came to fruition. You know, I think I was still... I was still learning and my style was changing so fast. And I just, 
I should have been doing shorter things to kind of experiment and find my, my voice. But I kept trying to do this one big long project that never happened. And then I kind of finally just put it aside and, and lost dogs was something I tried to do just sort of really quick and fast, something different. And it, it kind of came together. So I published that in, in 2005, I guess, but I had, there was some like mini comics and zines and sort of self-published things I had done before that, that were kind of just locally distributed. But yeah, so Lost Dogs would have been the first thing that went out to comic shops and, and, and it was in Diamond and stuff, you know. Yeah, and the, the cool thing is that Lost Dogs won a Zarek Award. Yeah, so I wasn't able, I mean, I was dirt poor, you know, at, at that time. I, I was out of school and I was just working in restaurants and trying to draw all day. And I didn't have any money to publish my own comics or print them or anything. But I applied to the Zurich Foundation, which... I don't, unfortunately, I don't think it's still active, but it would give out grants to first time self publishers. So I, I won one of those, and that was that enabled me to to pay for the printing of Lost Dogs and get it into the Diamond catalog. So that was that was like a huge, a huge step sort of in me in my career and me getting sort of my foot in the door of, of publishing. It was, a, it was really exciting. I, I remember, you know, that being a huge, a huge moment for me. Yeah, yeah, it must have been. It must have felt good. I mean, your very first published work, and you and you immediately get at that good sense of, of validation by having yeah. I mean, that must have given you a lot of confidence to keep moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think I needed it then too, because there, like I said, there were several years before that where I was sort of floundering, and I was drawing every day and, and producing a lot of comics, but I wasn't showing them to anybody, and I wasn't really publishing them. So it did get to the point after two or three years where you're starting to wonder is this a total waste of my time? And do I, you know, yeah. would, is anyone else going to like this stuff or is, am I just deluded? And, and, you know, so that when, when there is an outside thing like that, where someone that doesn't know you and isn't, isn't connected to you, validates your work and gives you that, you know, tells you you're on the right track. It, it keeps you going for sure. And, and like you said, yeah, it validates what I've been doing and, and made me realize, no, I, I got to stick to it. There's maybe there's something here. Um, so it really did come at the right time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a tons of uh, comic book writers who are who have been in that same situation. What, did, what advice would you give to them for them to push forward? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I I, I know what they're feeling. I guess the, the advice I always tell everyone is, I think I think a lot of young writers just want it to happen really fast, you know, and and they don't have the patience or the to stick with it, or or and they just want immediate sort of success or immediate validation, and you really have to be prepared to to kind of suffer for a while and, and, and just try to get better at your craft. And, you know, I did that for a good four or five years on my own before I ever published anything. And so, yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people just want it to happen right away. And they think there's some secrets waking up tomorrow and being a published author and, and having a career, but it, it really does. There might be years of, of struggle where you have to be prepared to just do the work, you know, and get better at it before you're ready. Yeah, and then and now you're one of the big names in the comic industry right now. You have a very strong base. You've had won multiple awards. You've been on. You've written for Vertigo, which must have been a great feeling to speak to, like that you did for Vertigo. Mary serves. How did that feel to be published at the oh. that you started reading when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean that was the coolest. I, I, you know, I never thought I'd be, I never thought I'd do half the stuff I've done. But you know, Vertigo was like I said, like we discussed earlier, those early Vertigo books were just huge touchstones for me to keep me interested in comics, and I loved them so much. And so to be to then be pitching stuff to them and and to be published by them was really surreal. And you know, I got fairly lucky there too, I guess, because I think the first two things I pitched they published, which doesn't normally happen you know and like kind of i was lucky <laughs> in that in that it happened so easily for me but i mean obviously there was a lot of work that went into those me getting to that point but it was very cool to kind of get get to know karen Berger and become friends with her and, and for her to publish my work and be part of that line in the history of that line which unfortunately no longer exists but it's such a great lineage of, of creators and all these different creators and comics that i just to this day still you know i love and, and consider some of the best ever published so to be a small part of that is is super gratifying yeah that's yeah. great yeah i mean i can imagine like i said i, I love the book because like said hellblazer uh, fables sweet tooth why the last man i mean it is one however it 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 was a, a cornerstone of the industry for a very long time 
Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, uh, it's too bad it's gone. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. The Black Label thing doesn't quite equate to what Vertical was. So you started off as an artist and a writer. What led you to decide, I'm going to stop doing the artwork and focus mostly on just the writing part of this? Well, you know, to be honest, I know I haven't stopped doing the artwork. You know, I've, every year I've published something that I've drawn since then. I think the thing was that you can only draw one project at a time because it's so labor intensive and time consuming to draw. So by writing for other artists, it allowed me to juggle multiple projects and do do more than one book, you know, and, and to build a career, you kind of need to to be able to do more than one project. So I was doing Sweet Tooth at Vertigo in, in around 2009, 2010. I was asked to pitch some stuff to the DC universe, you know, superhero stuff. And I obviously had grown up reading a lot of that stuff. So I was very familiar with it. And so I tried it out, you know, I tried writing for other artists. I did a couple small projects that kind of one led to another. And then I was a big part of the whole New 52 relaunch and had that with Animal Man. And that was kind of the first one that I would, just wrote that I kind of felt really, I really kind of found my voice as a writer with that one. So it became kind of cool that I could do books like that, that I was writing for all these great artists, but then I could also keep drawing my own thing, you know, and, which is kind of what I do now. I'm always, always drawing one project, but then writing several others. So uh, you stated there are certain artists that you always come back to, such as Dunstan, I'm going to get his last name wrong, the Ewan? How do you spell his last name? Gwen. Yeah, he just, it's pronounced Dwayne. Yeah. Dwayne? Yeah, just Wen. Wen, all right. Well, if you ever, uh, when, when you see him, get up, apologize for him. That's okay. And also, Andrea Sorrentino. What about these yep. artists that have earned your trust so much? And, I mean, is it just their talent? Is there something else about them that you said, I'm going to always revisit these artists at work to work with my projects? Yeah, well, I think it's like any kind of partnership or collaboration sometimes they work and sometimes for whatever reason they don't work as well and and you know I, I when I was working at DC I got the chance to work with all kinds of artists on different all kinds of different books and when one of them works and it, it feels right you just kind of know it you know and actually the Dustin and I never got to work together at DC but we always kind of wanted to I think we saw we saw something in each other's work that we found familiar and kind of certain aesthetic things and thematic things that we both gravitated towards that we both kind of liked and so and then with Andrea I had done Green Arrow with him at DC and it just really clicked right away or whatever chemistry you can have we had it you know it just really worked and we kind of brought out the best in each other and elevated each other which doesn't always happen sometimes it's just a job and it just doesn't it's okay but there's not that special something you know and so when you find those artists where there is that chemistry you just you know you try to you try to keep it going as long as you can because <laughs> it doesn't always happen. So yeah, for whatever reason with both those guys, I just I just clicked and we we each kind of brought something that made each of us better on you know in the final product. So yeah, hopefully I get to work. I continue to work with both of them. You know, I, I Dustin and I have been doing Descender and Ascender for oh geez five or six years now, and that's you know when that's done, I, we have already have two other projects kind of in development and oh wow and likewise with andrea we're just wrapping up getting falls but we kind of have our next thing sort of in development as well so yeah you know it's just when you find those good partnerships you kind of just keep them going as long as you can so as you work with them more often have how you work together evolved over time on and how you interact with one another on these projects Probably, yeah. I mean, I think when you first start with any artist, you're when you don't know each other as well. You pro for for my for for me anyway, writing the scripts, I probably put more detail and more direction in the scripts at, at first because you don't know what they're going to do exactly and how they work. But then, you know, after several years of of working together, I think we know each other so well now that my scripts have become probably get a little looser and a little sparser because I don't need to be. A control freak you know i kind of know what they're going to do and i trust them and, and vice versa so i i just kind of leave it a little more open for them to, to tell the story visually and and uh, yeah so i guess you just kind of loosen up and you don't have to talk as much there's not as much back and forth you kind of you understand where each person's coming from and and you don't have to say as much it's almost unspoken some of the things that you kind of know what the other person wants from you and, and expects and you just kind of do it so, so with Dustin, you're working, as you said, with Gideon Falls. What inspired the creation of Gideon Falls? Yeah, so <clears throat> Gideon Falls was an interesting one. It, you know, I had mentioned earlier, before I did Last Dogs, I was trying to do this 
big graphic novel, you know, when I first started doing comics and it was this, this kind of horror sci-fi story that just, I could never get working back then, you know, as a younger creator, but there were a couple of ideas in it that I really kind of liked and, and sort of stuck around. And, and a lot of those, a lot of the characters from that early work were, were characters that are now in Gideon Falls. So I kind of, in uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I kind of dusted off some of those old ideas and kind of re rethought them with Andrea in mind and, and, and built Gideon Falls kind of from the seeds of those early, early projects I was doing. So I guess in a lot of ways, it's sort of the book I've been working on the longest, if you really consider that. But yes, I, you know, with Andrea also, you just, when we decided to do a creator own book together, I kind of look at his art style and at the things he does well, and he tends to do darker more cerebral kind of psychological horror really well. So that's the kind of story I tried to tried to build for him. And, and I had all these, these little things from the past kind of waiting to be sort of, I guess, sort of rediscovered and, and rebuilt for him. So, yeah. So, so do you think it was more important the distance from the work so, and, or the maturity you had as a writer that made what you originally had for Gide- that was going to become Gideon Falls and make it work now? Yeah, it's probably a bit of both, you know, I mean, that was, so that would have been, I guess, almost, almost 15 years ago that, you know, between the, the original stuff I was doing and then when I reimagined it for, for Andrea. So, I mean, in 15 years, you become, you're a different person at that point and you've, I've done so much more work between now and then that I guess you can't help but look at it with a different set of eyes and kind of bring different priorities to it. And, and for whatever reason, it just seemed to work this time where, whereas in the past it, maybe I just wasn't ready for it or I wasn't, I wasn't a good enough writer probably, you know, to make it all work then, but now I have a lot more experience. So it kind of clicked. And then of course, when you're working with a great artist, they bring a lot to it as well. So maybe I, I needed the ingredients that Andrea could bring as well to make it one of his. It, 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 it's, it, it's nice when you have everything kind of click into place correctly when, you know, now you have time, maturity, experience, and then you meet, you meet the partner to make it. Yeah, really work. exactly. The right, t- the right project at the right time, you know, and you know, there's sometimes there are things that don't, you know, were never published that you, you guys wouldn't know about that haven't worked that I've tried to get going too. But when they work, they work. And that one, that one certainly did. <clears throat> do you, the other ones that didn't work, do, do you still have some in the background that you think, you know, I, you I keep them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep them all because they all find their way into, into stuff in weird ways. You know, there might be some idea that didn't work, but some little element of it works its way into something else and does work, you know? So you kind of file everything away and some of them you never think of again, but some of those things pop back up in the weirdest projects. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah, you never throw anything away. That's for sure. Now in the, I guess we'll call it for now, the proto getting false story was the black barn and, and the, the, like, the Latin villain an aspect of those original stories or were those things that became part of the, the regular getting false as we know it story. Yeah, so the the original sort of that proto, prototype of Gideon Falls from from when I was younger, it had the Norton Sinclair character, and it had he was sort of this this paranoid young guy who was searching through the city's garbage for some sort of conspiracy that he believed was hidden in the garbage, and and then it had these supernatural elements and things, but that was sort of it. And then maybe I don't know five or six years ago, seven years ago, I, I had a completely separate project about this priest who went to a small town and this black barn kind of horror story thing. And that didn't really work either. But then when I kind of put those two ideas together and you had this juxtaposition of these two different men and these two different settings of the city and the, the country, that's when everything started to click. So that's a good example of not throwing away ideas because it was, it was two different stories that didn't work that when jammed together, somehow it sparked and, and became what it was. <laughs> and the black barn was part of that later story. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic story. It's not only interesting to read, it's visually um, stunning. There's a great atmosphere to that story as well. And I think, I mean, even the idea of like the bug, something that it seems so like primal as like something that's just immediately disgusting. <laughs> and you know, yeah, like no matter how many years go by, even something like you would think, you know, like bugs does kind of get you somehow. Yeah, I think there are just certain things that humans are just 
<laughs> they're just we're just freaked out by it. it doesn't like spiders and bugs are definitely one of them that are you know yeah no matter how <laughs> not everyone but I st- a large a large part of the population will always just be kind of creeped out by those by, well, by insects for whatever reason so it's it's one of those primal things you can still use if you use it right well my, my, my wife is who, who may be listening so i'll be i can't probably say it my wife is terrified of spiders so yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have one of those people at home who absolutely is terrified of any kind of spider no matter how big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're not alone. There's a lot of people like that. So. Yeah, so when the interesting thing that you did, though, around 22, you, you, cut, you blew up the black barn and you really took the story and threw it into many different directions. That, that was kind yeah. of gutsy. That was a very kind of gutsy move. Not only did you change locale, but it kind of also changes stylistically with a very kind of Blade Runner kind of modern future, not modern future, but a future. You go to like a, the Wild West in a different part of the story. Yeah. Did, is, is there, was there a locale that you find more interesting? And was there anything in explaining the story like that that you either were concerned about that worked out or that you thought to yourself when you did it, oh my God, this worked out even better than I thought? Um, well, the whole, the whole multiverse aspect of Game Falls kind of developed... I mean, I kind of, it was kind of in the back of my mind when we started, but it, it became much larger, I think, than I, than I thought it would be. And the more we kind of played with it, the, the more fun we were having with it. So I think we had done a story early on, earlier that was sort of a Western. It was only one or two issues. That so was kind of an origin story, you know. And when we did that, I just, I, for whatever reason, really loved doing that kind of weird Western with Andrea. And so I wanted that kind of opened the door to go back to that setting for sure in this newer, in the newer stories. And then it's a Gideon Falls has always been about contrast, you know? So if, if we're going to go to the old West, I needed a new, I definitely needed a new environment to contrast that the way city, the city and the country did in the earlier episodes. So the sort of uh, um, cyberpunk future was the perfect kind of <laughs> aesthetic <laughs> balance to the old West in, in a way. So you, you just kind of build it like that and you play off. It's all about contrast. And I, I, I tried to do at the end of each arc of that book, I try to kind of pull the rug out from under what we've been doing and reinvent it again and again, you know, it, it just mm. kind of keep flipping it and flipping it and it just kind of gets crazier. And, you know, this was sort of the, the last trick to just blow it all up and, <laughs> and have, <one> last, <laughs> have them all scattered and then have to come back together. You know? Yeah. And the, 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 when the story kind of like blows up so much and honestly, this, the, the, the last issue that, that was um, this issue um, that had come out was 24 when, when I, you know, for this interview yeah. um, and obviously you're ending it at issue 27 is there, yeah. or was there concern that you blew it up so much that you can't close it out by issue 27 or it needs more time to unravel? Yes, that's why issue 27 is 80 pages. Oh, <laughs> 80 pages. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there was going to be one more full arc after this, but then we thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool instead of doing it as an arc to do it all as one issue and just do it like this massive almost like Gideon Falls the movie, you know, where it's like this, just this huge story to end it. So rather than doing four or five issues, we just kind of did it all as one big issue. And it just has this huge epic kind of scope, the last issue that I, you don't see that a lot, you know? And so it's, it was really fun to do it. And only Andrea could pull it off because he's so fast, you know? So, yeah, so I, I definitely took the time I needed. It's just all in, all under one cover instead of four covers. <clears throat> so is, is there going to be a release delay because of the size or is, is Andrea working that quickly? No. No, he's he's a machine. Plus, we're we're way we've always been really far ahead of of our publishing schedule. Because of all the people I work with, Andrea is the most like me, where we're we're always like a year ahead of whatever's being published. We're both both kind of obsessive about being ahead of schedule. So, I mean, we were so far ahead. We got we even took time off to do that Joker book for Black Label, and then to, and we came back without without missing our deadlines. You know, so yeah, no, there won't be any delay. It's it's gonna all come out. And on time. So does, and so, so does Andrea, um, Andrea, does he appreciate that? Like, hey, I think 80 issues all in one, <laughs> one time. 80 pages all in one time. Yeah, well, I definitely ran the idea by him before I started writing it. But he, <laughs> I think he, he loves the challenge as much as I do. And I think he saw the potential of having a book with that, that a page count that high. It really allowed him to kind of cut loose in that final issue and experiment and try some pretty nutty things with the layouts without having to worry about running out of room, you know? So uh, I think he liked that. Well, and, and, and the one thing I've noticed about a lot of the stories, at least the ones out right now, is that there's definitely a lot of um, religious overtones in a lot of your comic books you work on right now. Family Tree, Ascender has quite a bit, Giddy Falls has quite a bit. 
especially in, like in issue 22, you have a Gideon Falls where basically faith is something that is purchased, kind of like the old like medieval times where you could buy your way into heaven. And it's kind of a very dark, corrupt version of religion. Is that kind of like a feeling towards the direction you believe faith has gone in our culture? Or is that something just kind of a, a cool setup that you, that you had in mind? No, I think it's a little, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think it, it was cool to see this, this future where you literally have to pay tokens to, to worship, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, it, it was just a fun idea, but I mean, it doesn't reflect my own views or anything. I think it's just all my stories kind of, you know, there's certain primal kind of themes that run through a lot of stuff, you know, the, you know, family and, and fear of death and, and faith and all these things kind of run through all, a lot of fiction, you know, so it's, it's kind of no surprise that it works its way into my stuff too. And in different ways, you know, and in, in Gideon Falls, it's certainly, there's, we're certainly riffing off Catholicism and Christianity, but kind of showing it in, in, in ways you would never expect, but these people still kind of maintaining their faith in, in the face of all these horrors and all these things that you think may, may shatter their faith, but they don't really give up on each other or, or on what they believe, you know, and I, I kind of like that, that element of it. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I really like what you're doing with that future um, lookout. But I must say, my, my personal favorite is definitely the Old West part. It's visually stunning. It, there's something about the, the horror aspects that you created in that Old West setting really felt quite brilliant. And do you think it's at all possible you're going to be doing something maybe limited in that kind of world? Yeah, I'm already working on another another thing that, you know, sometimes, you like you said, I had a lot of fun doing that, and I knew I wasn't done with it. So I, there's another project I'm working on now, which it's too early to really discuss much more about it. But yeah, it's definitely going to, if you like the Western stuff in Gideon Falls, it's it's really taking the seeds from that and then building another another kind of story from there. So not connected to Gideon Falls, but aesthetically very similar. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I, I did read somewhere that James Wan is producing a film version of Gideon Falls that's still in development and which stage is it? Yeah, so it's actually a television show, not a not a film, but it's okay. and it's with Hive Mind Entertainment. So they've done uh, a couple of things. They did the Witcher show on Netflix and they do the Expanse. So you know, they've done some some really good genre fiction and, and yeah, they James Wan is is on as a producer as well and the pilot script's been written and and it's you know in development i guess as they say i don't i'm not sure exactly what the current state is but it's it's still moving forward as far as i know you know at this time so fingers crossed is, is there any kind of suggested release date that's working that you guys are working towards no this stuff takes forever i'm learning you know <laughs> uh, like for instance sweet tooth's coming on to netflix next year and that took at least five years of development to get to get it to the point where I was filming, you know, and, and, and I'm doing the television show for one of my earlier books, Essex County. I'm, I'm writing and show running that here as a Canadian television show. And that's taken us, I think five or six years of development, you know, just to get to, to the point where we're ready to shoot it. So these things take a long time and, you know, they're only a year or two into their, <laughs> into their development <laughs> of Gideon. So it might be a few years away, but yes, yeah, still moving, you know, piece by piece, it's still moving forward. Well, at least you're learning some patience, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the good thing, you know, the truth is I, I love making comics and uh, that's really what I live for is, is comics. So the TV stuff, obviously it's really exciting and fun, but it's not really why I do what I do. So my view of it is, you know, if it happens, great. And if it doesn't, I, it, I have not lost anything. I still got to get to make comics and got to do the comic of Gideon Falls the way I wanted to. So I don't know. I don't think a lot about it until it's time to really think about it i just kind of let them work on it and, and do my thing well you're also working on the fa on family tree which is totally very different to gideon falls when you're doing something yeah. like gideon falls and then you're moving over mentally to do family tree is it hard to get yourself shifted mentally to do something like family tree yeah you know it's kind of sometimes it's, it's always hard to shift from one book to the other at, at the first couple days of, of shifting but generally how i like to work is i'll really only work on one book at a time so you know, if I'm working on Gideon Falls, for instance, I might spend a couple months where I write like six or seven issues of Gideon Falls. And then I, where I just, that's all I'm thinking about. And I'm just kind of in that world, you know, and, and then I get so far ahead that I can put it away for five or six months and, and shift over to family tree or ascender or whatever, and kind of do the same thing. Right. So I'm always just kind of in one world and I, I get all the ideas and all the energy I have for that world out and get really far ahead and then put it aside and go to the other one. So 
it's not like each month I'm, I'm jumping between, between several books. Cause I think that that would be too hard to kind of differentiate them and, and kind of not get lost and, and not, not have the aesthetics of each one bleed into one another. It's good to, it's good to keep them separating and kind of, Try, hopefully put out books that don't feel too similar to one another. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, because like I said, they all seem very different, especially like I said, Ascender, Palmy Tree, and Giddy Falls. And I mean, is there like a cathartic um, feeling of moving from something so dark like Giddy to something a little bit lighter like Family Tree? Yeah, I think so. I think there's always a bit of catharsis in doing the dark stuff, which is kind of why I do it. it. You know, it gets, gets sort of all the negative energy and stuff that's floating around out of your system and then yeah, you can go on and do something that's a little more heartwarming and yeah, lighter in, in different ways. And yeah, I think you're right. There probably is some catharsis in, in doing it for sure. Yeah, and, and, and I think, and I really like what you're doing in Family Tree because in issue eight, what you have, you have the character of Megan, who at this point is basically a tree. It makes sense in the comic. It might sound weird if the people are not familiar <laughs> the comic, but it, it, it makes sense. Uh, she's a tree now. And basically what you have with her is that she stresses, the character of Megan stresses that everything's going to be okay. And then basically without giving anything away, some really shocking things happen by the end of that issue. And yeah. it makes you wonder, is Megan a trustworthy character? Is it is she the hero or is it is she kind of warped by her situation? Right, yeah. And uh, I mean it's good that you're asking all those questions, I think, you know, because it's too it's it's really easy to write characters as having one dimension or, or you know, and to be really kind of to kind of head in one direction and you go exactly where the audience thinks it's going. So it's, it's good that you can have characters that are a little more gray and, and can surprise. And I think that book, it takes a big twist. Like you said, at the end of, I guess it's issue eight, I forget which issues certain things happen, but I'm, I think I know what you're talking about where the, the story does take a massive shift. And then the next issue, it's a big jump where we go five years into the future. Spoiler alert. Oh, wow. You okay. see, so you'll see these questions you're asking, you will see the answers to them. And they probably won't be what you think they're going to be. <laughs> because it, does, it does take a pretty wild turn. All right. Well, that's cool. Thanks for that. And so I imagine then what uh, Megan does goes a lot further than it, it, it's, I would have thought near the end of that issue. Because I'm not giving anything away. Obviously, it feels somewhat localized, but it must have really spread out. Yes. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So, like, Gideon Falls, you had a 27 issue goal. Do you have the same thing going with Family Tree that this is going to have at this issue? Yeah. Family Tree is, is going to be 12 issues. So, we felt like that was the right length, like a year long project. And it's a great length to tell, like, a, a good, robust story, but not, not to stretch it too thin, you know. Sometimes it, the endings kind of come and, and you, and you don't want to stretch it out just to stretch it out. So that one felt right at 12 and Gideon felt right where it, where it's landed. You know, I, I can't, I know some, some creators love to do these books that just go on and on and on, but I, I, I always need to kind of know where, where we're heading and what the ending is uh, as much as I need the beginning of a story. So I, I kind of like to do those complete things that have a, you know, a good beginning, middle end. So my stuff all tends to, have a pretty set ending in mind. And sometimes, you know, the length of the story might shift a little, but I, I kind of always know where I'm going. So, so basically your family tree and Gideon Falls are going to be ending basically at the same, near the same time, right? Yeah. It's a weird year for me coming up. Cause a lot of the books that are being published now are all going to come start coming to their end point, you know, around or within, within a few months of one another, which wasn't really planned, but it just kind of worked out that way, which is kind of exciting for me. Cause I get to kind of step back and, and then create a whole new bunch of books. Hopefully that'll be, <laughs> that'll be good. So it's good to have a bunch of, you know, some new ideas kicking around and, and new projects starting up. And can you give any hints on what those new projects are or? Uh, probably too soon to be honest. I mean, you know, as I said, one will be with Andrea again and one with Dustin and, and a lot, there's a lot of black hammer stuff obviously still coming out. And so that's, that's kind of ongoing, but then there's a couple new books with, with artists I haven't really worked as much with that I'm, I'm pretty excited about as well, but yeah, too soon to tell and except for the weird, <laughs> the weird Western, I guess was towards, <laughs> well, towards one of those. Well, it, I, I don't say you don't want to, you can't give it away, but are these going to be all at image? 
Uh, too soon to tell, honestly. I'm just, I, I like to just get with the artist and start working on the story. And, and once we feel like we know what the story is, then we can figure out the best home for these things and the best format and everything. So it's still really early days. But yeah, I mean, Image and, Image and Dark Horse seem to be my home these days, you know. So chances are it'll be with one of those guys. You know? Dark Horse seems to be the place where I do all my Black Hammer stuff. And then Image is still sort of my home for everything else. So I, I don't really see that changing. Yeah. So is Ascender also uh, wrapping up soon? Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, you could surmise that probably from what I said that it, the end is in sight. It's not quite as soon as the other two, but the end is definitely in sight for Ascender as well, yeah. Next year sometime, I think. Oh, wow, okay. So yeah, yeah. When, when you were completing Descender, were you always planning on creating Ascender as well? Or did something... No. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah, no, it was just Descender, you know, and I was starting to get to the, like I said, I always kind of have my endings in mind, you know, as I'm working. And as I got closer to the ending I had for Descender, I started to get worried about it. It just didn't feel satisfying enough for what we'd built, you know, and I got closer and closer to this ending happening and it, it felt very anticlimactic and just sort of disappointing. So I started thinking a lot about what I could do. And, and then the idea came to sort of, you know, instead of having a happy ending where everything's great, and to have this this ending of Descender where everything is not great and basically the worst possible thing could happen. And, you know, out of that idea, the idea of kind of rebooting the book and completely flipping it from a sci-fi comic to a, a fantasy comic emerged and that got really exciting for us. So yeah, I, I didn't have a plan, but it just sort of came out of of me working the story and trying to trying to find a new ending and, and discovering this sort of whole new world that we could go to and, and make the, the story even bigger. So, so, so you had a descender, you have, now you have a sender, are you, gonna, are you thinking of yeah. like now like a resender? Or like, is like a third <laughs> version you're thinking about pulling? pulling Trust up? me, whatever, whatever joke you could say about that, Dustin's already texted me three times as many. So yeah, he's got all, he's got a list of, of titles like that. But, but, yeah, no, I think we'll, We'll be done with this, this, this world at, after Ascender, and we're going to do, a, we have a new thing we're working on that we're really excited about that's, that's going to be completely different and, and a lot of fun to do something fresh with him, too. Yeah, because I must say, I really like what you did with, with um, what, what you are doing with Ascender right now, because you're melding science, you're melding magic, there are vampires. It's a really fun <laughs> narrative story that, that, you're, that you're creating here. And the, as a writer, I wonder, is it hard to manage such like a diverse concept and still make it so your readers can make it feel accessible to the story? No, not really. I think it's a lot of fun because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the best stuff comes from like juxtaposing two really different things together and, and sort of the, the creative tension you get when you put two, two characters that are completely opposite from one another, two settings, whatever. So when you take in this case an even, an even bigger scale, taking two different genres and jamming them together it just starts to open up all these fun possibilities and all these things you can play off of each other and all the similarities between sci-fi and fantasy that you can find, but also all the differences and that stuff just opens up fun story ideas and fun ideas for characters. And I mean, the canvas is so big, it kind of feels like we could, we can do anything. And so, yeah, it's not challenging. If, if anything, it's kind of creatively exciting to, to do that. So how, how deep are you going to dive into explaining how magic exists in a scientific world? We go, we go to the origins of it all. Yeah. At some point. So I won't say any more than that, but yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah. We definitely answer the questions and it's all in there. So, so with, and with the character of, is it Mila or Mila? Yeah. Mila. Well, Mila, did you intentionally make her um, a young character so the reader can experience that world the way she is or at, at the moment where she's like, discovering the world, the universe? Yeah. I love that. I love stories with, obviously I love stories with young protagonists. I've done a lot of them, but I do. I just love that age where everything still has a sense of wonder and you're not quite disillusioned by the world yet and everything's still exciting. And, and so to, to yeah, to, to kind of, when you have a big, huge canvas, like the world of Ascender, to have that point of view where things are, can be scary and dark, but still exciting. And, and I have to have her as your sort of navigator through that world is, was really fun for me, for sure. Yeah. Cause like I said, she, she's a wonderful character. And another character that popped up that I really think is at least visually um, very exciting is Kanto. Oh yeah. Is, yeah, is, is, Dustin. yeah, is, is uh, Kanto going to get his own uh, 
a miniseries or background story at some point? <laughs> he gets a, he definitely, there's definitely a lot more Kanto and you get his whole origin story and everything. Uh, he's not going to get his own series or anything, but yeah, he's going to, he starts to play a much bigger role in, in the story as we, as we move forward. Like I said, he does, he looks absolutely awesome. He, he's kind of like the, the way he, he makes it up the appearance and just visually, he's just, He's, he's a very he, he definitely grabs your attention in, in a very exciting way yeah i told when we were thinking of him i i told dustin just think of like if if batman were to be created in the world of ascender what would he look like and, and so dustin kind of went nuts and created like this cool super quote superhero kind of vigilante character but in the in the context of Descender and Ascender, and it's pretty fun. But, uh, but he does he does seem to fit perfectly in that in the world that you created for him. The other thing about Ascender that's interesting in issue twelve, you seem to you read you seem to reintroduce a character that shows up in Descender. Um, I don't give anything, I get too much away with the character. How does that change the dynamic of your story from this point forward? All right, yeah, you have to do. You have to forgive me. I. I write the stuff so far ahead that I honestly don't know what happens in each issue anymore. So can you tell me oh, <laughs> which um, one pops up in 12? Uh, Tim 21. Okay. All right. Yes. He's, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously now we're getting to the point where you're starting to pull the, you're starting to pull the sender and ascender together and weave them together more closely. You know, we have descender and then we had ascender, but you, you kind of knew at some point these two worlds would have to, to merge and become one story again and this is tim is obviously the the point where that's going to happen or you know the worlds of the world of machines and of science fiction now are, are returning to this world of magic and and now we're going to sort of see the these two sort of sagas come together and, and tell the big story that we've always been building towards <clears throat> yeah and, and since tim 21 was such a major part of descender and Alison Mila is a major part of what you got with ascender because you introduced tim 21 does that mean the point of view now is going to shift towards him now, or are you going to, is he no. a background character of Ascender? Yeah, I wouldn't say he's a background character, but I, I think Ascender was always meant to be Mila's story, and that's that's she's she's she will remain sort of the heart of it. It's hard to answer that question without spoiling some stuff that's that's going to happen, but yeah, I, I think Mila's definitely remains the protagonist of, of Ascender, but. I wouldn't say Tim will be in the background. He's going to have a pretty major role in how how her story ends. Yeah, and, and I mean the the series is fantastic. I'm really loving um, Ascender. And once again, I, I again with you, it seems to be the running theme is that Descender and Ascender is now picked up by NBC Universal for the television rights. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, that's also in development. You know, I'm working on that one myself. So that's really exciting to kind of take this world that we built and just sort of adapt it and interpret it for another medium has been a real challenge for me, but it's been uh, really cool. And yeah, sometimes looking at the story from a different point of view like that gives you ideas that you can, you can kind of bring back to the comics. So that's been cool too. So with NBC Universal, is it being made for NBC? Is it being made for Peacock Station? Is it going to be streamed somewhere else? I think it's too soon to know any of that stuff. It's, it's a fairly new deal that we struck with with lark entertainment so we're not really concerned yet with who's gonna broadcast it so much as what they're gonna broadcast so we're <laughs> working on the story right now and that that'll come later I mean, it has gotta be some sort of irony there where you started off in the world of film you know where to drop it for comic books on some level you're actually moving back into film a little bit yeah it's weird i never expected it that's for sure but you know you know these opportunities come and, and they're exciting and fun to do and so I, I am enjoying writing for the screen as well i didn't think i ever really would do a lot of that but the more i do the more i enjoy so you know as long as i can juggle all the stuff I'll, I'll keep doing it but certainly comics will always be my my home and the thing i return to so well like i, said, I think it's fantastic like I said, I'm, I'm loving everything you're doing right now is there anything else you can tip to our listeners to, for them to look forward to? Yeah, I mean, the thing I'm working on the most right now that I'm, I'm super excited about is doing a sequel to Sweet Tooth, which is going to come out through, yeah, it's going to come out through Black Label. It starts in November, I believe, yeah, November. So the first issue ships in November. I'm writing and drawing it all myself again. So that's really cool. And the, again, there's going to be a Netflix TV show of Sweet Tooth next year that they're filming at the moment. So suddenly find myself back in that world in a big way and that's been really fun to go back to 
So is there, is there, from a production standpoint, is there any difference between Black Label and Vertigo or virtually the same entity? For me, there's no difference. No, I mean, I'm working with this, actually working pretty much the same editors I worked with back when I was doing it at Vertigo because they're all at Black Label now. And, and the, you know, creatively in, in terms of the process of, of actually creating the book and everything, it's, it's really the same. The only difference is obviously the, the the logo on the cover when it comes out so it's yeah. not a big deal to me yeah now the batman black label book was an oversized comic book basically is sweet tooth yeah. going to follow the same format no sweet tooth will be a traditional comic size i wanted it to be the same as the original series so that they all can sit together on the shelf so yeah i think they're doing that a little more where a lot of these some of these graphic novels or, or mini series are that sort of oversized format but there are st- there are projects that are still the traditional stuff. I think the jo- all the Joe Hill books and and Sweet Tooth and a couple other things are are traditional comic size. So I was glad that I could I could do it that size so it could sort of feel like a companion to the original. Yeah, and, and I'm gonna say as a somewhat in a retento comic book uh, collector, I really liked it when it's just the size of the other comic books. <laughs> I didn't know what <laughs> I, to do. I don't know where to put the bigger format books. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about your fantastic books. I've really been enjoying reading them, and I think I, I look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. No, it's definitely my pleasure. Like I said, you're fantastic work, and you're, you definitely have produced, basically, you're one of the big combo people right now, especially writers in the industry right now. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks for reading the stuff. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do what, what I do without the support of people like you. So, I mean, it's, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. No worries. Thanks a lot. All right, have a great day. And we're back. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on. Really appreciate that. I really appreciate you giving us the time of day and talking to us on our show here. Uh, it's, it's really big fan of your work. So thank you so much for coming on. And if you enjoyed that, and I know you did because you're awesome, you need to go over to Spoilerverse.com and check out all of our back issues with so many other cool creators. We've talked to a lot of people over the years, and there's a lot out there if you're like, you're going to find more you like, I promise you, there's going to be more that you like. Now, while you're there, check out all of our other podcasts in the network. We have tons of content for you. We have articles and reviews and previews and so much stuff you need to check out. So just go there, do that, leave some comments, you'll be awesome. Also, go to SEPod us slash discord join our public discord server we get people chatting there all the time we're all there you can talk to us if you'd like to you can take part in our contest because they're gonna be pretty awesome and go to the store link and go to our store pick up a t-shirt or a hoodie look fly as hell and help support the site now all that said and done there's one last thing to do in oceans of podcast we are cthulhu and as cthulhu comes to do open the mic and read more